One of the key ingredients, um, excuse the war analogy again, but to, the key ingredients to the, uh, the end of World War II was the fact that the war was battled on a number of fronts, from the east side with the Russians, and from the west and from the south with the, kind of the, the English-speaking allies, You've got Canada, England, and all that kind of stuff, um, all coming from one, uh, different sides. Winning was only possible if the battles were won on, on all fronts. Similarly, there's a game apparently happening somewhere in sort of Dublin area at the moment. And, 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 you know, the rugby. You cannot win a game of rugby if just the forwards play well. You've got to have the forwards and the halfbacks and the back. They've all, you've got to win the game on all fronts, if you like, if you're going to win the battle. And likewise, the battle in our passage today that God prepares us for through this letter of Peter... This battle is to be fought in every arena of our lives, on, on a number of fronts, if you like. The purpose, you see that at the end of our little passage today, in chapter 2, verse 2, that, that you may grow up in your salvation. Win the battle on a number of fronts so that you may grow up in your salvation. And it's really important, do note, in, that, in just those, those verses in chapter 2, verse 2, that he's not saying uh, to grow at... The battle is not for your salvation. Peter says, we battle to grow in our salvation. Uh, let's think what that salvation is, though. And that's what we looked at last week. Remember it, that if you can, we saw a salvation that, uh, this is a salvation that Christians are lovingly elected for. We saw back in verse 1. Uh, the, the origin of that election was in the foreknowledge of God. Uh, the, the, uh, the experience of that election was in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, day, day, day on day. And the purpose or the joy of that election was seen in our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in the first couple of verses of chapter 1. It's a salvation that we saw gives us a new birth. That is a new life in Christ with a new king heading towards a new kingdom. Hence why, in verse 1, Peter describes us as strangers in this world. Because we've been saved for a world to come. Uh, an eternal kingdom, rather than a transient kingdom. Now these are some of the blessings of our salvation that we're going to be looking at today. But there are many more. Just if you can, flip back to chapter 1, verse 3. Let's scoot through some of those blessings. We see that we now have a living hope. It's living because the author, the founder of that hope, is alive. He's resurrected, now glorified and ascended in heaven. We have an inheritance, we see in verse 4, that is waiting for us, that will never perish, spoil or fade. And it is kept in heaven for us. And amazingly, we are kept for it. Verse 5, by the shielding power of God. We have trials in verse 6 of many kinds. Now, at that point, you're going, blessing of salvation? Really? Yes. Because they refine us and they glorify Christ in the process. And we finish, in, well, we don't finish. In verse 9, we see that another blessing is that inexpressible and glorious joy that we can know in that salvation that we've been saved for. The salvation in verse 10 and 11 is foretold by the prophets and it is proclaimed in the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ through the apostles in verse 12. And even as it finishes, a wonderful climax. At the end of verse 12, do you notice it? It is even eagerly desired by the angels. This is the salvation 
that Christians have received through faith in Jesus and his sufferings on the cross that lead to the glories of eternity. And Peter wants his readers, if you like, the whole emphasis of this book, the main thrust of it, in chapter 5, verse 12, the purpose is that we might stand firm in that salvation. That's the purpose of the letter. Now, Christians, let's, let's think about this. We've done nothing to earn this salvation, this glorious, eternal salvation with our Lord Jesus. So what Peter's doing here today is he's saying, guys... You've been saved. Nothing of you, of your work. But you need to start living consistently with who you are now in this new birth. You need to start living consistently with the salvation that Jesus' blood has brought you. See, the battles that that Peter lists in our passage today are, if you like, necessary implications for the person that has been elected and has been saved by Jesus Christ. But critically, and you must hear this, critically we must understand that the salvation that we heard about last week precedes, comes before the implications that he's about and the battles that he's asking us to face. One writer put it this, I thought it was very well put. He said, the indicative of God's grace, the sign of God's grace, precedes the imperative of God's commands. More simply, who we are as Christians, those saved by the electing work of God, must come before in our hearts and our minds and our lives what the implications are of that the works that we are required and asked to do as a result of that. But you see, the second part, what we're going to, how we're to live and what Peter instructs us to do today, they are a necessary outworking of the salvation we have through faith. And the other thing is, they're also a great assurance. Now, we don't get that to it in this passage, but they are. And we could get turned to Scripture to, to, to demonstrate that. I think the big thing is, though, if we get this the wrong way round, and if we speak of our kind of religious works, our our moral behaviour as coming before our salvation, then what have we done? Well, we've reduced a, a living hope. We've reduced a saving faith to simply a guilt ridden, institutional, man made religion. The Christian is someone who simply comes before God and their hands are empty. They can say, I I can bring nothing for my salvation. I can do nothing for my salvation. And they trust essentially in the hands of Jesus. The the hands that have lived a life that is utterly perfect. And the hands who have reached out in that mighty way that we saw illustrated earlier. And were nailed to a cross for all the times that I've ignored Jesus. And you have too. Taking a punishment that you deserve. And that I deserve. And that is why any instruction that you receive in the Bible. In the new covenant. Any imperative of the Christian life. Always comes with a connective word at the beginning. And he says like we see in verse 13 here. We see therefore. You see that there don't you. Peter doesn't begin you know, any instructions to this scattered persecuted church. 
uh, that he writes to until he has celebrated the wonders of the salvation which he just ably demonstrated in 12 verses at the beginning of chapter 1. Can I say, if you're here today and you cannot celebrate as Peter has celebrated his salvation in Jesus Christ in verses 1 to 12, if you can't celebrate with many of us here, then why don't you take time, maybe today, just to read through verses 1 to 12 and, and to be honest, to see what you're missing out on. Uh, salvation, the majority of us know here, well, none of us can be arrogant in that, can we? Because none of us deserve it. But we've humbly received and responded to that gospel message of Jesus Christ that the apostles have proclaimed and we read in God's word. And the point is, you can do exactly the same. So Peter begins in verse 13 with that word, therefore. And he's saying, therefore, Christians, live consistently with the salvation you've been given in Christ. How? Well, there are battles that we need to fight. And the first battle we've put on, I've put on your sheets there is a battle in the mind of the Christian. And it is for... Hope. Look at verse 13 with me if you can. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So in each section today, uh, as we look through this passage, uh, Peter describes a battle that the Christians, saved by grace, will have to fight. No battle can be ignored. But together they will help us grow in the salvation we've received through Christ. And each section begins with an imperative, an instruction for the Christian. And it's linked to a particular aspect for the person. And here, in verse 13, the battleground is the mind. And I suppose the battle cry is for hope. Prepare your minds for action. It, it, it's a funny little phrase, this actually. It's actually... Literally, it says, um, gird up your, the loins of your mind. I'm not going to illustrate that too graphically, okay? It's not a pretty picture. But it basically describes the tucking up of a long robe in ancient times and tucking into your kind of belt so that you are more free to run, shall we say. I'm not going to illustrate it too much, shall we say. But um, it allowed your legs to kind of run uh, with freedom. I suppose the equivalent today would be rolling up your shirt sleeves. That's the kind of same, you know, for action, getting on with it. Peter's point, I guess, is simple. If we're to live consistently with the salvation that we've received in Christ, you can't allow your mind to kind of wistfully go through life. There's, There's some control, there's some preparation of action. We need a kind of mental determination to have a freedom in our mind to run with our salvation, to use the illustration given. I guess he's saying it as well. Look at the terms he used. To be self-controlled in our minds. Perhaps what we feed our minds with. If we all consider and think, if all that we consider and think about in, in in this is all the, just the stuff of this world, then how have we got any chance of winning this battle? I guess we need to ask ourselves the question, have we lost control of what we feed our minds with? 
Do you kind of idly fantasise? Do you dream about a a certain thing, a possession, a job, a, a relationship, or whatever it may be? The warning here is, You need to be careful. There needs to be a a determination, a preparation for action in your mind to be self-controlled in that. It's quite a defensive action to begin with. But what's the offensive strategy? Look at the halfway through verse 13. It says then, set your hope, the context being your mind, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. We We spoke about this certain living hope last week, didn't we? I don't want to go too much into that. It's founded, of course, in the the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. It's future-orientated because it's heading towards an eternal kingdom. And it is also a present comfort, the living hope, because as we go through the struggles of this life, it it gives us a a direction, a future, a, a hope, a certain hope. But what you hope in is really, in a sense, what your confidence is in. And so often we place our confidence, don't we, uh, in, in things that we know that will perish, spoil and fade. And whether that's our wealth, our, our looks, our status, our jobs, our relationship. The battle in our minds, where our confidence and hope lies, must be, if the battle is to be won, in the eternal grace that we will fully know when the Lord Jesus takes us home. And if our, if our minds, our hope, lies in the transient rather than the eternal, and Peter says that, be warned here. So the first imperative is to hope, to be self-controlled in our minds. To, our minds must be prepared to hope with confident expectation that we'll receive this grace that's fully present now in our hearts, but not fully realised in our lives. There's so much more to come, he's saying. And in so doing, I guess we'll begin to be able to think and therefore act on the basis of our true nature in Christ, whatever the circumstances of our lives. So the first instruction is to hope, and the battleground is of our minds. Second instruction, let's turn to that, shall we, in verses 14 through to verse 21. He says, be holy. That's the imperative. Where? He says, the whole of our lives. Peter uses four main instructions throughout this. Four imperatives to prepare, firstly the mind, but now the life of the believer. Why don't you just cast your eyes down to verse 14 to 16. Let's look at those. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who is who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. What he's saying is, becoming a Christian shouldn't just transform one part of us, just our minds maybe, but he's saying our whole lives. Jesus through faith has given us this new birth. And as a Christian, therefore, that birth has brought us into a new family. With a loving heavenly father. And what Peter's doing here in this little section. He's saying now you're in that family. You've got a family responsibility. He points that out negatively first in verse 14. So the assumption at the beginning of that verse. Is that we we will be obedient children to our father who has saved us. And he says well our lives should be radically different now. 
That is, we no longer conform to, to the way that everyone else is living in this world. That is, that they're opposed to God. Hence why they're described as ignorant. Now, that isn't a slur on the intelligence of the non-Christian, by the way. You know, don't, don't kind of point that, the finger in that way. Rather, it's, it's, it more speaks of a kind of um, a spiritual blindness, an inability to understand who God is. That's the ignorance it's pointing out. So the argument is negative first. The, the family responsibility is saying, do not conform to the ways of the world. But then more positively, we're encouraged to live like our Heavenly Father, to live in the family likeness. Live like Him, to look like Him in every aspect of our lives. And to be holy means that the Christian is not to conform to the culture around us but rather now to conform to God, his character, his way of thinking and living. And what does that look like? Well, to be holy, I mean, Ali was pointing out earlier, it, it actually means to be set apart. So to be set apart from sin, to be concerned for God's glory, not our own glory, to be different, set apart from the culture around us. Peter quotes in verse 16 from Leviticus there, from the Old Covenant law. He does that to demonstrate to these Christians, actually, that, that though the law was to set apart Israel from their neighbours as God's Old Covenant people, Christians are to be no less set apart. They're to be no less holy as the New Covenant people, as the Church of God. We're still called to holiness in our salvation. But by quoting from Leviticus, what he's doing is he's showing that that moral aspect of the Old Covenant uh, given in the Ten Commandments is not null and void. But rather it is now perfectly lived out in Christ who saved us. And we should honour that salvation by being set apart and holy ourselves to honour the one who has given us our salvation. But practically what does that look like for you and me? Now, what is holiness? Well, if you think about the great summary of that, that kind of moral law in the Ten, Ten Commandments, well, you know, it is to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. Let's take the second one of that, loving neighbour as ourselves. How are we doing on that? You know, are you struggling with a particular neighbour, colleague at work, friend, you know, that you go out with? I can think of someone who I've been at a local school now for, I think it's just over two years. I can think of someone who I see every day of the school term, and I think I've spoken to them once in the last two or so years. They're different from me. They come from a different area. They dress differently from me. I think they've probably had a very different background to me. That the names of their children are a little bit different from the names that I've given my children, if you know what I mean. They dress differently when they come to the parties, that they give different kind of presents. I don't want to sort of spell that out, but you know what I mean. I'm embarrassed to say that I don't think I have loved them as I ought to have loved them. And in one sense, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of admitting I'm a bit like a spiritual chameleon. I switch on my love for neighbour when it suits me, when it's most comfortable for me, when that person is most like me and I feel comfortable with them and I'm 
Oh, do I really want Barnum and Zach to play with those children? No, no. I get it wrong so often in that regard. And I just sometimes want to blend in with everybody else if I begin to feel uncomfortable. Now, where do you struggle? To be set apart, to be like God, holy, in a particular social setting. I'm not in the city like many of you guys are, but I guess it's difficult there in different times. But you will know the situations where you do not emulate the character and the nature of God, when you struggle to be set apart and holy. And you actually just follow the crowd. I I guess the thing that I've asked myself about this is, you know, have I just sort of plateaued as a Christian in regard to my holiness? Well, Peter is urging us here, I guess, not to bring the family name into disrepute. We're to fight the battle for holy, distinctive living in the whole of our lives. Well, why? Well, there comes a bit of a warning to follow. I'm not going to spend too long on it, but cast your eyes over verse 17 through to 21. And you'll see there that we're called to change our attitude to God. Because the person that we're addressing here is not only the loving father, but you also see he is the all-knowing judge. The judgment, have a look at it, verse 17, it's described in three ways, I think. Firstly, it is personal. You see that because each person, you see that? Each man. And you see that it's not only personal, but it's an impartial judgment. There'll be without bias. And it will be continual, the judgment. It says, for the whole of your lives as strangers in this world. But the judgment on our lives is presented here in the the present tense. I I don't think he's really referring to a future judgment which Jesus has dealt with for our salvation in our place. But rather, I think what he's referring to is God's assessment here of our holiness. And God, because he is a loving father, chooses and does, as we see in Hebrews 12, discipline us. To bring us back to his way, as any loving father would and should. You see, the the, the death of Jesus has implications for how Christians live today. We've, We've been bought, we've been redeemed from an old way of life into this new family, from an empty and futile way into a a purposed way that has a, a future eternity. But this high price has been paid for us to be in this new family. And the price is Jesus' blood. It's a far higher price than any commodity that we can have in this world. And Jesus was willing to give up the most precious commodity, his son. And why did he do that? Well, we see in verse 20, it was for our sake. It was for you. So that you can be part of this family with this loving, heavenly father who, yes, will discipline but who loves you dearly. So Christians, let me summarise. Live now fearing your father's discipline because at a great cost in those following verses, God has ransomed his son so that we can now live for him. If you just um, flick on, I don't know where it is on your pages, but just go turn to chapter 2, verse 16. You'll see it kind of uh, mapped out a little bit. You see, it, there's a bit of a tension there, isn't there? We know that we're free from the penalty of sin because of Christ as our salvation as we want. But we are free to be what? 
chapter 2.16 says we're free to be the servants of God. Literally, the word is slave there. That is, we're, we've been saved to now live for God. And that means to be holy. So the second instruction is to be holy. The battleground is the whole of our lives. Third instruction, let's turn to that briefly. And that is to love one another deeply from the heart. Now these instructions, I haven't had time to go through, but they are cumulative in a, in a sense. They, and they move as well from the individual now to the corporate nature of our faith, to the community of the church. Because they are called now to love one another. Now one of the most difficult parts of being a Christian, I reckon, especially in the culture that we live in, is to understand that your covenantal relationship with God is, is never an individual matter. The authentic Christian life cannot be lived in isolation. I cannot do without Gainer. I cannot live without Gordon. I cannot do anything. I'm brought and I live in a community with you guys. I need you and you need me a little bit. That is in stark contrast, isn't it, to the culture around us, where all you hear is self-sufficiency. You hear individualism. The assumption is made in verse 22 that we've, if you like, the cumulative effect, we've, we've followed the first two instructions. We're purified, be made holy, because we've obeyed the truth, that is the word, the Bible. And in so doing, he says, you're going to love one another. That is, you're going to love your spiritual brothers and sisters. Do you get it? He's saying, if you have um, set your hope, preparing your mind, if you battle for holiness in the whole of your lives, you will love one another deeply in the heart. He said, you've got to win the battle on all the fronts. And he doesn't mean that kind of warm, fuzzy, loving feeling that we see portrayed on so many films and whatever it may be. Rather, he's meaning a love that is based on the character and the nature of God. That's the particular love word that is used here. See, I guess a Christian, it, a Christian doesn't merely just uh, assent to a bunch of kind of weighty doctrines and say, yeah, I agree with those. But a Christian is a person whose life is transformed and whose foundation is on those truths, those doctrines, but with a purpose. And the purpose is that transformed life which is expressed in love for one another. Because as, as our transformed lives are seen throughout the world, it gives all the more glory to God. So if you can follow the logic quickly, again I haven't got too much time, but verse 22 you see that the love uh, that is commanded is the result of obeying the truth of God's word. But then, verse 23, in that new birth, that is made possible, that transformation is made possible by the new life that God has created by his eternal word. But I guess if you think about the context of the Christians that Peter's writing to, they would have felt incredibly weak at this, at this moment. They're scattered, they're persecuted, they feel strangers in a world 
the persecuting force of the Roman Empire probably worn them down. They may have struggled to believe that any of this, that Peter's instructing them, is possible at all. But Peter shows and demonstrates from these little verses at the end here that even the imperial age of Rome, even like the great empire of Britain, the superpowers of China and America, he's saying, you've got nothing to worry about. They will perish. They're transients. And that's why we get this perishable seed kind of illustration in verse 23. It's just another way of describing humanity. And I guess the particular finger would be pointing at Rome at, the mo- at that, mo- that moment, the persecuting uh, world of Rome on the Christians. But the point is, he's saying, you know, loving one another as you've been instructed to, that is hard to do even in the easiest of times. Never mind when you've been scattered and are now persecuted, when you feel so weak. So once again, as Peter always is doing throughout this letter, he turns to the Old Testament. Here quoting from Isaiah 40, and he's simply doing as he's taught in chapter 1, verse 10 and 12, showing that the prophets were there to serve the church. Now, it's brilliant. So verse 24, he says, For all men are like grass. He's especially probably thinking of Nero or something like that at the time. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But, he says... The thing that I've been teaching you, the word of the Lord stands forever. And the living hope that comes from that word and the salvation that you've known from that word stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. You see what he's saying? He's saying we're to love those who we find ourselves sat next to right now. And we have everything in something that will never perish and fade. The word of God. We have everything we need to enable us to do what we've been called to do. We have this new spiritual life. And we will spend the rest of eternity with all these people that you're surrounded with right now. We better get used to this idea that we've got to love one another. And we better get equipped to do it. And we've got everything we need in this imperishable word right in front of us. I, uh, there's other helpful stuff coming up in chapter 2, verse 1 as well. He, Peter lists ungodly traits that we need to kind of put off, to get rid of, spiritual immaturity expressed in this kind of hypocritical slander. And he's saying if we get rid of these unhelpful characteristics, we will begin to grow up. It'll all start kind of coming into place. That's the negative battle, but he, he turns to now one final positive, if you like. As he instructs us in in our fourth point, to crave, to grow up in your salvation. Just turn with me, final verses, verses 2 to 3. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now crave, do you crave anything? Well, it simply means eagerly and frequently. And that's like newborn babies. That's why the illustration there is newborn babies. They crave for, for milk, don't they? Now, the milk illustration, we mustn't kind of link it with, perhaps you're thinking Hebrews 6 at the moment, where it's, it's seen as something babyish. That's not the point here. The illustration is to, to point out the craving. And, and rather, and the purity of it as well, I think. There's whispers of Psalm 42 here, I think. 
which he's saying, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul pants, craves for you, O God. It's a similar kind of phrase that's being used. I guess the questions we need to ask is, where do we need to go? Where can we taste this kind of life-giving food? What do we need to crave? Where can you regularly feed to grow up in your salvation? Well, the most amazing thing is, my friends, is that you've got it right now in your hands. And it tastes amazing. You've tasted that the Lord is good in the salvation that he's given us in Jesus' death on the cross. But Peter, to use that phrase, he's saying, come on, you can go further. You can go to the next level if you like. Like in Psalm 34, and Peter is alluding to that psalm here, we're invited to grow in our salvation in this passage. To not only taste that the Lord is good, but also to see it. To see it in our lives, day by day, in our minds and our hearts, and our everyday living in response to our salvation. Let me finish with those words from Psalm 34, which I think Peter is alluding to here. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We've tasted that salvation. Let's now see that salvation being worked out in our lives for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the salvation you've brought us through the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. But help us to not um, nonchalantly accept that, but live in response to it, to um, uphold the family name that we've been brought into through his blood on the cross. So help us to be uh, self-controlled with our minds, to live as you have saved us, a life that is holy and pleasing to you. Help us to love one another deeply from all of our hearts and help us to, if you like, fuel that by craving that which will grow us up in our salvations. Help us to crave the word of God. I pray this for your glory's sake. Amen.